This is sermon number two on Mark chapter 13. And last Sunday, I made an attempt to explain how this chapter fits into the immediate context of Holy Week. In, in the context of Jesus' imminent death, burial, and resurrection, his hard words here in chapter 13 about the coming destruction of the temple and of the future end of the age drives home several realities. So last week we saw that Jesus is the Lord of the temple and is therefore more glorious than the temple. He tells his disciples, don't fixate on the beauty of the temple, fixate on the beauty of the God of the temple. Last week, we also saw that the imminent death of Jesus is more devastating than the future destruction of the temple. He wants his disciples to understand that nothing worse than the death of their king and savior can happen to them. Not even the societal upheaval and devastation of Roman destruction of the temple and of the entire city of Jerusalem. And finally, we saw last week that even though the worst thing that could happen to us has happened, the death of our Savior, God uses that darkest hour. God uses that greatest tragedy and loss to work the greatest good and meet our greatest need. The death of Jesus is going to be followed by his triumphant resurrection. And in rising from the dead, Jesus releases us from the chains of sin and death. And Jesus guarantees us security, no matter what trouble we ever experience. The death and resurrection of Jesus gives us greater hope and security than the temple or anything else could ever offer. So that, that was last week. That was the immediate context. This is why Mark puts this here in chapter 13 in the middle of Holy Week. And now this morning, we're going to look more closely at the details of what Jesus teaches in the chapter. But as we do, let's try to keep the context that I just mentioned as our bearings as, as we navigate the passage. So, so keep in mind where we are as we move forward. And if, if you're listening as Kim was reading, there are several directions that I could go with this chapter. And we could preach many sermons on chapter 13 if we want to unpack it thoroughly. And the path that I've chosen to organize the sermon this morning is to look at four questions that I see Jesus answering in the passage. The four questions are, number one, what are the disciples' expectations about the end of the age? Number two, what pattern for the future is Jesus laying out for his disciples? Number three, what is our calling as we wait for Jesus to come back? And number four, what is our hope for the future? So first, what are the disciples' expectations around the end of the age? And how does Jesus reframe those expectations? If you were here on Tuesday evening, we had our evening of gratitude service, and we organized the service around the four movements of the gospel, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. And Jesus' disciples and, and all Israelites, or descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, members of the covenant family, in Jesus' day, they were living squarely in that second stage of redemptive history. They, they knew 
that God was their creator. God was the one who made all things and held all things together. God stood alone as eternal and unmade. God was worthy of all honor and worship. So they understood creation. And they were living in the fall. They were living in light of the the fall. They knew that humanity had sinned against God and lived under the curse of death and that they were exiles from God's presence. But they lived in hope because God had not destroyed humanity. But God had promised to send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the snake. And God had chosen their ancestor, Abraham, and told Abraham that he would fulfill this promise through Abraham's family, that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham and his offspring. That's, that's what Jesus' disciples, that's what all Israelites understood. And they were waiting for the day when God would send this offspring of the woman, this descendant of Abraham, this son of David, this Messiah, anointed king. They were waiting for that day when God would send that person, that man, to bring about rescue and restoration. But they assumed that those two pieces, those, that, that part of the storyline of the gospel, the rescue and the restoration, they assumed that they were tied together as one event. So they assumed God created the world, we fell into sin, but God is going to send a rescuer, and when he comes, he will restore all things. And that that's going to be a one-time event. And if you read your Old Testament, the Old Testament authors commonly referred to this event as the day of the Lord. And you see that day of the Lord language all over in, in the Old Testament. You, you could look at passages like Isaiah chapter 2 or Joel 2 or Malachi 4 or Amos 5. And these prophets, they would look ahead to this coming time when God would bring judgment and renewal and he would fix everything that sin had broken. So creation, fall, day of the Lord, when everything is fixed and and made new. And that would be this this one-time event. The Messiah would come, he would defeat his enemies and Israel's enemies, he would restore the kingdom, he would make all things new, and he would usher in a new age of peace, and security, and that age would last forever. And the disciples show by their words that this is their expectation. They assume that Jesus, in coming to Jerusalem as the king, is soon going to take his seat on the throne. He's going to overthrow his enemies. He's going to establish his eternal reign. They assume that the beauty and majesty of the temple is only going to increase now that the king has come to settle in and display his glory. So they they say to Jesus, Jesus, look, here's the temple. Look how beautiful it is. How much more beautiful is it going to become as you take your seat? And so they're dismayed when he tells them that this beautiful temple This symbol of God's presence and God's favor on them is going to be torn down and destroyed. And Jesus reveals here that the reality is radically different from their expectation. 
The day of the Lord is not a singular event, but is something that is going to unfold over time in two stages. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to earth and become a man. He is God in the flesh, and he has come to usher in the day of the Lord, to inaugurate a new covenant, to deal with sin and death, to rescue his people, and with his resurrection to initiate the work of restoration. But that restoration is not immediately going to come to full fruition. Later on, the writer of Hebrews summarizes this first and second coming. So Hebrews 9, 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus has come to deal with sin and death, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to usher in his new kingdom. But those are two events, not one. Here in Mark 13, Jesus has come as the king. He's about to go to the cross to deal with sin and death, and he's going to rise in triumph from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death. That's the immediate context. But in this chapter, Jesus is showing his disciples that there's more to the story, that there's more that's going to take place after that. In, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus addresses the future destruction of the temple, and he says that even that is not going to mean that the end has come. He says, this must take place, but the end is not yet. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The final end will come at a future indeterminate date, verses 24 through 27. In those days, after that tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, we are very familiar with that reality. We, we understand that. We look back 2,000 years to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we are looking forward to Jesus' return. We've, this is second nature to us. We, we understand this. We can read this chapter and, and move on pretty quickly. But put yourself in the, in the shoes of the disciples or of, Je of Mark's early readers. This was an enormous shift for the early church to come to terms with. This was a big surprise to them. One, one commentator pointed out that in the Gospel of Mark, there are only two extended teachings. You have Mark uh, 4, I think. Yeah, Mark 4, Jesus gives a bunch of parables. And then here in Mark 13, Jesus predicts the future. Those are the only two teaching blocks in Mark's Gospel account. And so this is a big deal to Mark. Mark understood that for his first audience, a major stumbling block to them in, in believing that Jesus is the Messiah is answering the question, then why haven't things been made new? Then why is the world still broken? If Jesus is our king, where is he? Why is he not here with us? Why has he not taken his seat on the throne? Why has he not wiped out his enemies? Why has he not restored everything? Why has he not taken away sin and death? And so Mark wants to give Jesus space to unpack that. 
Mark is helping answer that question, helping reset expectations, that that rescue and restoration is not one event, but two events with a big gap in between. So that's the expectation that's being reset. Second, what, what pattern for the future is Jesus laying out for his disciples? Rescue and restoration are not one and the same, but they're two stages that will unfold over time. That you've got this first coming and then the second coming. And in between, there's going to be the destruction of the temple. So you have these three events, this first coming and the death and resurrection, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and then the second coming and the end of the age. Those, those three events are dealt with here in, in chapter 13. And Jesus is setting expectations for his disciples. At his first coming, Jesus is bringing about his work of redemption. At his second coming, Jesus is gonna bring about final restoration. And given that these two are, these are not one but two events, and that there's this large indeterminate amount of time in between, Jesus teaches that there's going to be some general patterns that will repeat themselves through this stage in history. So there's general patterns. You see this throughout the chapter, Jesus tells his disciples that in the coming days, and we can know that those days are years and centuries and even millennia, in the coming days, there will be trouble, persecution, and tribulation. For example, look at verse seven and eight. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For, kingdom will, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. There will also be false prophets and false messiahs, verses five and six. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Or verses 21 and 22. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And in the midst of this trouble and tribulation and these false prophets and false messiahs, there will be abominations of desolation. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's happening with Jesus' prophecies here, and we see this with other prophecies in the Bible, is that they will be fulfilled in multiple ways. There may be one or even many initial partial fulfillments, and these all of these initial fulfillments point forward to a final, ultimate fulfillment. With the trouble and tribulation in verse 19, so in verse 19, he's talking about, he's specifically talking about the trouble, the destruction of the temple. And he says, 
in verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And that is, that's prophetic hyperbole. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here to emphasize how great the destruction will be. And we know it's hyperbole because we know that it's not literal, that there literally won't be worse uh, trouble ever, is because they, other people in the Bible say the same thing. And you can't say this is the worst multiple times if you mean it literally. So if you look at Exodus 11, Verse 6, when God tells Moses about the coming death of the firstborn, the, the final plague in Egypt, Exodus eleven six, 6, he says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So same language. This has never happened before. It'll never happen again. And then in Joel... Chapter 2, sword drills this morning. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when Joel is talking about the day of the Lord, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth, of the land, tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So there was an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel's day. There was a catastrophic event in Israel that Joel described in that way. Just like there was this catastrophic event in Egypt in Moses' day. And Jesus says in AD 70, there will be another catastrophic event. And for those who experience that catastrophic event, it will feel like this is the worst thing that has ever happened to anyone and the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. So these tribulations are eventually going to give way to a great tribulation, a final fulfillment. Verse 23, excuse me, verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So there will be such a tribulation that the stars will fall from the sky. The moon will not give its light. It's the same thing with false prophets and false messiahs. When the temple is destroyed in AD 70, there will arise... False prophets, false messiahs, and they will try to draw away and give false comfort to God's people. And false teachers and prophets and messiahs in every age will try to do the same. The point here is that when trouble comes, deceivers will arise who will try to lead God's people away from truth and trust in Jesus. It was true of the serpent back in the garden. 
It was, it will be true in the future of the capital A Antichrist that comes at the end of the age, and it's true in between. John warns us of this in 1 John 2.18. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So there's a pattern here of false teaching and false hope. People telling you, put your hope in me. I will save you. Jesus says, don't be deceived. And then finally, it's true with the abomination of desolation. That term, abomination of desolation, comes from a prophecy in Daniel. And you can see it in Daniel 9 through 12. You read the first few chapters of Daniel, and that's like where the kids' storybooks are, and then the last few chapters just get wild. You, you start a Bible study on Daniel, and you say, great, Daniel in the lion's den, and then you get to the last half, and you think, whoa, this is going to get a little different. So in, in Daniel 9 through 12, Jesus, uh, Daniel talks about, he foresees someone who is going to blaspheme and desecrate the temple by offering unholy sacrifices. And Mark makes a narrative comment in verse 14. He says, when you see the, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, parentheses, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he makes this narrative comment because he wants his readers to catch the connection. The abomination of desolation, that refers back to what happened in Daniel. In Daniel, Daniel says of this man, chapter 11, verse 31 of Daniel, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And again, there was an initial fulfillment in 167 BC. So this is 150 years before Jesus comes on the scene. Antiochus Epiphanes, this Syrian king, slaughtered a pig in the temple, offered this pig as a, as a sacrifice to Zeus, and sprinkled the temple with its blood. So he, this is abominable, and it's desecrating the temple. And Jesus says, and Mark wants his readers to catch the connection, that this type of blasphemy will repeat itself several times in history. First, when the temple is destroyed in AD 70. Just like Antiochus did in 167 BC, someone else is going to do that in AD 70. And we see the Roman army do something very similar when they destroy the temple. And later in the New Testament, we find that this pattern will happen again at the end of the age in the Great Tribulation. Paul mentions a man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, This man of lawlessness will exalt himself so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And John speaks similarly of the beast in Revelation 13. So, so there's these patterns that are going to repeat themselves. And so in light of that, third question, what is our calling as we wait for Jesus to return? How in the world are we supposed to live in the here and now if things like that are going to happen? In verse 4, the disciples asked Jesus this question, when will this happen and what will be the signs? 
Jesus gives the majority of his answer to the signs and very little to the timing. And his answer to the timing is only the Father knows. So be ready always. When his second coming will happen is of less concern to Jesus than how we ought to live while we wait for the second coming. You see it through the chapter. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 23, but be on guard. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. In other words, pay attention to the signs. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. And then finally, verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Maybe there's a theme there. Stay awake, be on guard. In our little evangelical circle, when the end times come up, most people immediately think of the rapture, the great tribulation, and the millennium, the the thousand years that that we see in Revelation 20. Those those are the terms that immediately come into into your mind. And what I've often seen is that there can be an obsession about those three details that can cloud the picture, that can kind of crowd out everything else. What I want you to see here in, in chapter 13 is that where you or where someone else stands on the rapture or the tribulation or the millennium is far less important than how you are living in light of Jesus' second coming. He is coming back. And so how are you living? How are you preparing? Jesus has come. He has conquered sin and death. He will come again to make all things new. You're somewhere in the middle of that. And so what does your life look like? Christians can come to different convictions about those topics. And you should study them. You should come to your own convictions about about the rapture, about the tribulation, about the millennium. But we all have to agree that he is surely coming back and that we are called to live faithful, dependent, expectant lives now while we wait. Peter, Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, you hear that day of the Lord language, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since that's happening, that's going to happen, because that's going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So do you see Peter's emphasis? Yeah, 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 that's going to happen. Praise God, hallelujah, come quickly, Lord. 
What sort of person ought you to be, given that he is coming back? Stay awake. Be on guard. When Jesus comes, and exactly what it will be like is unknown to us, verse 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. When is unknown, that he will come is certain. Which leads us to the final question that Jesus answers in the passage. What is our hope? What is our hope as we wait for Jesus to come back? Our first hope is that Jesus will come back and that the end will come. Verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The time of trouble will come to an end. History is not an endless wheel of time that just crushes people as it rolls over them. There is a finish line to history. There is a place of rest waiting for God's people. Trouble will come. Trouble may already have come in your life. But Jesus is in control and he will not allow it to go on forever. He is coming. One of the cries of the saints is how long, O Lord? And Jesus' answer, not forever. Verse 20, he says, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Take heart, dear ones. Your suffering may be great, but it is a light momentary affliction when you compare it with the eternal weight of glory that is coming. Verse 26, he says, the son, of the, the son of man will come with great power and glory. Jesus has conquered. He is risen and reigning and he will return. And just like it says in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The end of history is written, is decided. It is not up for debate. It is not a contest. It is a given. And it's good news for God's people. Verse 27. The elect, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the of the heaven. The elect will be kept and will be gathered. Not one of them will be lost. He will take all of them to be with him as his own. And here's where we'll end. Elect does not mean elite. We will not persevere because we perform well, because we have it all together, because we are better than other people. I didn't see this until recently a commentator pointed it out. Verse 35. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight 
or when the rooster crows or in the morning? Do you hear the immediate fulfillment that's coming there? Those four time frames: evening, midnight, rooster crows, morning. Look at what happens to Jesus over the next few days. He tells his disciples, stay awake. And the next evening, or two evenings from then, Jesus will take his disciples to Gethsemane. And he'll, stay, he'll say, would you stay awake and pray with me? And what do the disciples do? They fall asleep. And then at midnight, so that's Thursday, they're in the, in the garden praying. And midnight comes, it's now Good Friday. And in, at midnight, Jesus is betrayed. Judas leads the, the guards into the garden and the guards uh, arrest Jesus. And nobody's ready except Jesus. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody's awake. And then that morning, Jesus is delivered over by the high priest to Pilate to be crucified. Pilate, the high priest has no idea who Jesus really is. He's awake, but he's asleep at the wheel. And the disciples have abandoned Jesus. And the, the rooster crows. And we know that when the rooster crows, Peter has already denied Jesus three times. So Jesus warns his disciples and he warns us, stay awake. And the reality is that they didn't and you haven't. None of us is going to be adequately prepared or perform to the standard that we need to. And the good news of Jesus's return is not that he will find us faithful. That's not our hope. Our hope is that he has already been faithful for us. Only one man will stay awake. Only one man will stand guard. Only one man will endure to the end. Jesus, and he's already done it. He's done it for us to keep us safe, even after we fall asleep even after we fall away, even after we betray him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has come and he will come again. And so let's look to his coming with hope. Let's pray. Father, we know that Jesus has come, that he has made a payment for sin and that he will come again. And our hope is not in what we have done in the meantime, our hope is not in our performance, but in Christ's performance. So we can look at the past and see what he has done, and it allows us to look to the future with hope. In Christ we pray. Amen.